What up, all you beautiful misfits and rejects out there? Thank you for joining me for episode 130 of Misfits and Rejects. In today's episode, I sat down with Dwayne Dixon in Phung Nha, Vietnam. Dwayne was voted by the expats around him as one of the most interesting, cool individuals of Phung Nha, so I was really excited to have him sit down with me and really hear his story about why he's in Phung Nha. He's been there a long time, what's going on with him, and what came out of it was this really great episode where we learn about you know him growing up in a situation that I think a lot of listeners can relate to, being surrounded by people that he didn't connect with, that didn't accept him where he was growing up. Dwayne grew up in Mumbai, India, but his ancestors were some of the first people to colonize Mumbai, which was at that point in time called Queen's Victoria's Gate, Queen Victoria's Gate. And in fact, on the British side of his family, his great-great-grandmother was within the royal family. And what we learn is that a lot of citizens of Europe came there for adventure, came there to start a new life in a warm climate, and his ancestry were some of those people. So when it became time for him to migrate to Europe to go to university and really immerse himself in a culture that he was unfamiliar with but really wanted to get to know, it became really difficult. This whole new era of closing borders and really having to prove your ancestry has made Dwayne's situation very unique because both of his parents hold European passports, but he doesn't. So for him to get back to Europe is extremely difficult with his Indian passport. Dwayne has an engineering degree with a focus in aerospace from a prestigious London university. And at the point when he was about to be able to get a job and start working towards getting his citizenship in England, his visa was revoked and he had to go back to India. And it kind of sent him into this five-year exploration of the world where he kind of settled in Fung Yan. He now works at the Easy Tiger Hostel and is just trying to wait until his parents can sort out the paperwork to enable him to get his Portuguese and British passport, which he's entitled to because of his ancestors. It's a really beautiful story and so eloquently told by Dwayne. He talks about what is home, where is home, and how home is where you feel comfortable, and a home is where you can be yourself. And he definitely found that, I think, in Vietnam, but wants to be able to go back to a home that he can call his home. He wants to be able to go freely back to England, Cornwall to be exact, and hang out with his family whenever he wants without having to spend five months in advance to get a visa to only stay a short time. He wants to move more freely and go back to a country where he can use his engineering degree in a way that is fulfilling to him. It's a really cool story, and I could have spent hours talking to Dwayne. In fact, I did. It was just such a nice conversation, and somebody who is one of those people that you come across and instantly feel comfortable being around. And I can tell why all his peers around him in Feng Ya really enjoy his company and being in his presence. If you're a first-time listener, please pull out your phone and hit the subscribe button. Please also remember that Misfits and Rejects is on Spotify now. So for a lot of you, I know that makes it a lot easier to listen to. So please remember to share Misfits and Rejects with your friends, reminding them that they can listen to it on Spotify. And with that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with Dwayne Dixon. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact 
I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today I'm joined by Dwayne Dixon, a gentleman working at Easy Tiger here in Phong Nha, Vietnam. Actually, really interestingly enough, like I told him pre-show, he was nominated by his peers as one of the most interesting men in the village. <laughs> so I had to ask him to come on the show, which he, he is. He's here, and we're excited to hear from him. So welcome to the show, Dwayne. Thank you. Yeah, it's nice it's to have you, man. Good. So I didn't really pepper you with too many questions pre-show just because I could see that there's a lot of complex yeah. nuances of your story. I just kind of want to come out organically. Yeah. But I do know that you were born on a colonized island off the southern coast of India yeah. that was Portuguese and British. Yeah. And you grew up till you are 19. Yeah. Um, in no relationship to Indian culture, you speak perfect British English, <laughs> and that's tremendously fascinating to me. Can you just talk to the audience a little bit about your upbringing, like what was that like and why was it Portuguese and British, and what does that mean? Um, so the British colonized um, that part of the world for more than 350 years. Um, whilst they moved from Britain over to which was called uh, British India, which was seven countries, now has seven different countries rather than British India by itself. Uh, they met the Portuguese along the way, and they realized that the Portuguese were better at trading. So they joined forces with the Portuguese, and the Portuguese and the British colonized that entire country, well, which was now seven countries. And they had spots everywhere. Um, the Portuguese was mainly in the south, the British were more in the central and the northern part, so they occupied more of the area than the Portuguese did. But that's how my family met. Uh, my great-great-great-grandfather was a sailor, and my great-great-grandmother was uh, part of the royal family. Um, not important part of the royal family, but extended bit. And they met and they lived on the colony for a few years. They got married, they had kids, and then that's just how everyone kind of was, was raised. Obviously, it was obviously back from the colony to the mainland, like loads of everyone should just go up and down, up and down. It never was seen as a different place. Like it wasn't seen as India, it was just a holiday destination for Britain. Right? Okay. Yeah. So that would be my next question. So like I was wondering, like, did your grandma get sent there as like a punishment? No, 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 no. It was, it was not, no one was sent there as a punishment. Um, it wasn't really a punishment at all. It was more of, uh, if you wanted to go and work somewhere else where it was sunny and unlike shitty England where the weather's always like horrible, um, people decided to go there and trade and try different um, job role. Was, was she, I mean, she sounds like because she was part of the royal family, probably fairly wealthy and didn't have to go work. It was more of like a Yeah, it was, at, at that time, like nobody wanted to just go and, it was part, yeah, partly was, the main, main part was the adventure, but she also wanted to work. The majority of my family actually really, really worked. My grandfather was like up in the army, he was in the navy, uh, he was a professional tap dancer. He tried his hand at everything. He played um, field hockey, um, polo, all of that. Like he's got medals to show for a lot of it. And it was this, it was part of my family's thing to try and do something else, not just sit and and build all the wealth that they had and whatever. That's all of it's gone now because it's just been I, I don't even know where it is I can't keep track of it but I can't even find papers from my family to see what they are and stuff like that, which is why I'm in this situation at the moment okay we'll get to that in a second yeah. um, seven countries explain to the audience what that means because I am like understanding that India is India what do you mean by seven countries British India was Pakistan India um, Sri Lanka Nepal Bhutan uh, Myanmar and I'm missing out one Tibet so they were all part of British India. And now they're not. Now they're called seven different countries by its name because they fought for the independence and stuff like that. Okay. They, I think it started to dissolve in 
38 or something. That's when it started. Every country had its own independence, um, depending on when they decided to fight for themselves. Interesting. Do you know why the British were better traders? What made them better traders? I think or it was just the, the manpower that they Portuguese. had. The Portuguese, manpower. they just had the manpower. Um, the British weren't very... They were very commanding and demanding, I would say, as compared to the Portuguese. The Portuguese just wanted to trade. Um, so that hand-in-hand hand worked really well. I see. So the, the British overpowered everything. The Portuguese were just really good at trading. So that works really well. And then all of a sudden, it just went to shit. And people started leaving. Uh, jobs started to, to disappear. Um, and then the, the locals started to fight for their own, own land and pushed them out. The Portuguese were the last to leave. They were the first to arrive, last to leave. Uh, the British mainly left in 1947 onward. Uh, the Portuguese left in 1969. So they're still for a couple of years. <clears throat> Fun little fact pre-show, he mentioned that your father was uh, in school with uh, Queen, as we know, Freddie Mercury. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, did you ever get to meet him? No, I didn't. I was too young. I was actually not even born. Okay. Yeah, I was not so they didn't remain friends, but they went to school together? No, they didn't because they had their own, um, they took their own path, really. Because my dad was a roughneck. Um, he worked in oil rigs. He worked in a garage when he was 16, fixing cars, until uh, so he learned his mechanics, really. And then when he was 20, he went off to the rigs. Um, he was sailing seas, like nobody knew where he was and stuff like that. And is he still doing that? No, he retired when he was uh, 54, I think. It was quite demanding. I uh, physically couldn't take it anymore at 54. Where are your parents now? Uh, they live in Cornwall, but my mum and dad are currently in India trying to fight for my situation with the whole paperwork and um, trying to see if I can get my passport. Really. Okay. Um, well, where You went to uni in London, correct? Yes. What did you study? Uh, mechanical engineering with aerospace and automotive design. Okay. That's a big jump now to working at a hostel. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what it is your, a massive what jump. Would your, what were your aspirations? To work for like aerospace or something? Um, I actually wanted to work either for Boeing or Airbus. Um, I did that for a year and I also did uh, automotive for a year, which for a big diesel engine company called Delphi or Delphi, depending where you're from. Um, and I ideally wanted to get into motorsport because the job is quite demanding, yes, and two, you travel a lot in motorsport. And so what happened with that? Um, they changed prime ministers when I was at uni. So essentially, when I went to uni when I was 19. Uh, I was on a three-year visa, which included uh, the three years of my course, one year of placement year, which means you can work for a year in an industry and then come back and finish your final year. And after I graduated, I was guaranteed uh, a PSW, which is post-study work permit, which you're allowed to stay in the country for two years to find a job, and then you get your permanent residency, especially for me, because coming from the line that I was, I'd get my passport after two years. David Cameron came into power and cancelled the PSW when I, I was in the second month of my last year. So that went tits up. Um, I tried to, when I graduated, I tried to apply for jobs and stuff like that, but they had to sponsor me. It was a new law that came into place. The companies didn't have uh, anything set up for this new law. It was like, it's too soon. Uh, you'll have to wait. We really want you to work with us, but we don't have the legal permit to actually have you. Um, I just carried on for six months, eight months, almost a year. And I was just at to a point where I was just like, fuck it, I'm just going to go travel. And I'll just see what happens down the line. And that was five years ago, six years ago. Nice. What was yeah. your first destination of travel? Funny enough, the first destination was India um, because I never saw it. 
I never ever traveled anywhere and I was really interested about to see what the culture was like and understand it and whatnot because I had a pretty tough upbringing in that small little place that I had to live in and to my mates who I graduated with um, they were just like oh we're going to India for three months do you want to come with us and I knew one of the blokes and his two of his friends from home and I flew first I met them at the airport they came about 12 hours later on a different flight and yeah we started traveling for about three months it was interesting and then I met Two Danish girls that I traveled with for about five months through India, then went to Nepal, met uh, this German girl along the way, and it just carried on from there. I traveled with a Danish girl for at least about a year and a half, I think, all the way to Vietnam. In a relationship, I'm assuming? No, 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 no. Just friends? Yeah, just friends. We just got along really well. Really well. So, yeah, I'm, I've, India's come up a lot in conversation yeah. as being a very uh, uh, sense-provoking yeah. environment, yeah. overwhelming, um, culturally just shocking to a lot of people. Yeah. How did you feel about it? I mean, since you kind of were isolated, it sounds like you didn't grow up within that, like, madness that is yeah. India. Like, what was your impression of it? Do you like it? Did you like it? Do you want to go back? Oh, I hated it, um, to be quite honest with you. I have nothing against culture. I'm not trying to be racist anyway. It was just, it was just too intense. They don't accept you for who you are. You have to be part of who they are. If, if you're not white, they don't see you as... Um, someone that they can respect if you're white they'll bow down to you and like praise you and stuff like that which is weird but if you speak a different language to them and you don't look like uh, a white person then they just don't they don't give a shit there were simple things like when I was traveling with the, with the girls and anyone else I should travel with if I go to a, a ticket office to book a bus ticket they're quite rude they would just throw tickets at you no smile they wouldn't answer your questions properly or whatever they just get ignored really whereas if I told the girls you mind getting the ticket because all smiles come out and like how are you today and stuff like that and it was just like what's the difference between the two of us I'm being polite to you there's no need for you to be rude back is there I think that's one advantage women have in all cultures around the world <laughs> no I don't think it was a woman thing. it was just the like oh they're, they're, they're white and they're foreigners and stuff like that it was, it was always the case because when I was younger I always got the questions like where are you from why can't you go back to your own country why are you here so I tried to like integrate with the culture to be one of them. And so I wouldn't get asked that question because I really wanted to be part of the community. And for years and years, this never worked. Until a point where I was 16 and I, was, like, I gave up. I was like, well, if it's not going to work now, it's never going to work, is mm-hmm. it? So I, I decided to, to just kind of like get away. And I told my mom, I'm going home. Like, yeah, you guys have been born and raised here, but you were at a different time where you were not trying to integrate with culture because you had your own thing. Which my parents didn't understand because they never actually lived there during the time that I was there because they were always working abroad. My mum's a hairdresser and a beautician, so she travels quite a lot. Asian Games and Winter Games and the Olympics and stuff. And my dad's a roughneck, so he's never there. So who raised so, you when you're there? On and off was my mum and dad. So when my dad used to come back, my mum used to leave. And my mum used to come and my dad used to go. I see. So it was a bit of both. But it was, they just didn't know what was going on until one point where I, I just broke and I told my mom, I can't do this anymore. And I sat down and explained everything to her. She was like, why didn't you tell us before? And you're just getting picked on or what? Yeah, constantly. Yeah, just constantly. Constantly. Yeah. Constantly getting picked on. I used to be called the British Bulldog. Mm. <laughs> you scrapped a lot? Like, Pardon? Because you would scrap a lot, fight a yeah. lot? Yeah. So it was I- just a, it was something... I never started fights, but people always just pick on me to the point where it was just like, what am I going to do with this? I can't mm. complain to anyone because no one's going to see my side of the story. Mm. And, yeah... Can you describe just so we can get a better visual? Like, so we, 
you describe it as a colony. Like I'm thinking commune and like <laughs> my head, like all these like not hippies but like people in a small village like no so, so the thing is my parents we were all from that colony but, but my parents couldn't afford to live there anymore so when I was three years old they moved from that island to another island which was essentially where the locals and used to live because the colony dissolved itself in 1960 something but people from there still live there because they chose to they didn't want to go to England and Portugal and stuff like that till everything went massively tits up which was like 97 um, when people started to leave if you go there now there's big massive houses stone houses of designed by the British and the Portuguese that are completely deserted because people just couldn't be bothered to wait to sell them they're just left there and there's plenty of them plenty of them if you look at the infrastructure in the main part where the British came in uh, which is now called the Gateway of India used to call it Victoria's Gate um those structures are still standing up massive stone structures the wow. infrastructure is amazing and the the Indians have tried to destroy it to get rid of it start to build it and they just can't because it's, it's too heavy too well. <laughs> it's built too well they got rid of all the statues because we had statues of the queen and they put their own uh, statues there whoever they think is powerful enough to be like human or like uh, spiritual like Ganesh. oh human both a combination of both that's, I'd say Okay. and they changed the names for everything but it took them more than 40 years to change the names of things When Sunday, someone just woke up one day and was like, well, why, why, why do we have these names? Which, which makes no sense, really. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's, it's, all, it's all been, it's all different now. Like, when I was traveling there, I just, I just I was baffled by how much it just changed. Mm. And you've been, you've been traveling, you traveled for like five years, it sounds like. How were you making ends meet? Um, I had enough of income. I worked hard when I was at uni, a lot, because I had to pay my own tuition. So I was seen as an international student um, because I've never lived in the mainland. Um, because of that, I was paying £12,500 a year. My first year, I took a student loan from the bank. Uh, that only covered me for £10,500. And then there was plus four and a half for accommodation. So it was £14,000, uh, which I didn't actually have money for. So that I kind of worked for the three months when I first started at uni to pay the four and a half. And, I, and anyway, I, I managed to do that. And in the summer, I worked really hard. And I started accumulating money. And I went on a placement year in my second year, accumulating more money. And I paid for all three years. So my debt was actually no, £38,000. After my last year, I finished paying about £32,500. So I did pretty well. And the rest of the money that I had in the summer, over the six months that I was looking for a job, I took to travel. And you just traveled with that for five years? <laughs> yeah, I did. Wow. I had no social life at uni, so my social life, I decided, was going to be five years of traveling, actually experiencing life rather than work, 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 and struggle all the time. Yeah. That's all I've done until I was 24. Okay. How old are you now? I'm um, 30 now. Okay. Yeah. Did you pick up little odd jobs like at hostels around the world and stay for periods of time? Or were you pretty much always in? I was pretty much always here. Like, I've... So I came here after about two years of travel, a okay. little less than two years actually, and I've been working here since that time. So, so you're so just so that folks know, we're at the Naked Tiger here in Fungya, yeah. and you've been here for how many years working? On and off, because I leave in between. The longest stint that I've been away for was nine months, and that's how I've kind of managed to stay away, away for five years and travel because I work here, take that money, and I go and travel. I, see. I came here in 2015. 
That's four years. Yeah. It was, was the first time I came here. What do you like about it so much? Um, initially, it was... Uh, obviously, the area there is absolutely beautiful with the caves and the scenery and stuff like that. And we had a lot of... We had a lot of expats here. We had like 14 or 15 expats. We used to always, always have time to be together. And we used to have a house um, down in the other village. We used to all congregate and like have beers on the, on the roof, play some music and whatever. It was, a, it was a big, big community that we had. Whenever someone was working, you knew that someone who was not working could go out with you. So that was, that was amazing at that point. That's what kind of attracted me to it. It was that group, the group that I, the friendship group that I didn't really have, that I always wanted. Are any of them still here? No, unfortunately not. They've all left. <laughs> They've all decided to pursue different things. And, uh, but there are still some people left here that I get along with. And mm -hmm. we, but time is very hard to, to come by now. Everyone's kind of serious with their own businesses and their own jobs and stuff like that. Yeah. And with tourism booming now, jobs are getting more demanding and hours have to be put down and stuff like that. Do you see yourself trying to develop something of your own here? Or are you going to just maintain the status quo? Um... No, I don't. I don't really want to to get involved with business here, mm -hmm. not particularly. Um, it is Vietnam. Yeah, business is probably not the best idea here unless yeah. you get married to someone who's local. Okay, this is my perception of it because I see other people with businesses and I know how it works here, and it's not everything. Most of it's under the table. I don't think I want to go down that route. I see. You know. um, let's dive into you know what I've heard is you're a stateless man. Yes. What does that mean? <laughs> Um, so I've been struggling a lot to get my passport back, which my mum's been trying to sort out. In Long story short, um, my mum's uncle, who uh, was a man who kept everything, as my mum would uh, describe him as, he's kept things that, like, um, it was just like a feeding bottle of someone from the family who was two months old. He's a like hoarder. That. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. And when he passed away about six years ago almost, five years ago, in fact, um, he left this, um, so when my, my parents were in the colony, they had a, a plot of land and it was called uh, Oliver Mansion. Oliver was part of my uh, mum's side of the, mum's mother's side of the family. And they built a mansion called Oliver Mansion. Obviously now that the bungalows were completely destroyed and they built like flats because it's a city and whatever. But uh, they sold most of it except for the bottom floor of the flat, which is quite a huge amount. Um, Mum's uncle used to rent some of it and lived in a really small room for himself because he didn't really want the area, he was quite old or whatever. Um, the guy who used to rent it, or was supposedly renting it uh, from him, has not paid for the last 37 years. And when my uncle died, um, my mum decided to take the case and fight for it. So, mainly because if she fights for that flat and that land, it proves who I am and why it was constructed and who it belongs to actually, rather than some person who decides to take it for 37 years and claim it as his. Like squatter rights, kind of. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Which doesn't, it doesn't exist because none of the paperwork or anything. It says everything. All the documents are, say that he's supposed to be paying rent every single month and he hasn't done it, so he's broken the law massively by 37 mm -hmm. years. Um, she's won the case four years down the line. Um, he has to, he's paying up every month whatever um, fees are included for like court hearings and stuff like that. But he hasn't paid the, the fines, um, which the court hasn't passed a date for yet. But once all that is sorted out, uh, he pays his fines, whatever, and the court actually legalizes that property being under my mum's name because my uncle left it to her when he died as well. And it left into my name when my mum passed away, if my mum passed away. Um, it needs to be sorted out, and that just generally proves who I am. The other thing about saying my uncle keeps everything is um, 
my mum's father, who's uh, Portuguese, which we don't have anything to prove for to say that we're Portuguese or British in that fact, because there's another paper that exists anymore, because we didn't think of keeping it, and that it would affect anyone down the line. It would just be easy to, to go to the Portuguese embassy or British embassy and get our passports, but it's not that easy in fact. You need to prove about five generations worth um, if you come from a history of, of my family. And it was very difficult. The thought of it was just impossible. Until my mum actually pulled out everything from storage and she found out, she found all the paperwork. Uh, five generations worth. And she also found a little birth certificate saying that my mum's been registered in the Portuguese and the British Embassy when she was two months old, which her father had done. And out of seven siblings, um, he was the only one who registered my mother. Um, nobody else had registered in the family. So that's a good, strong point for me uh, and for my parents. Can we get in a little bit more detail about this? Because yeah. I'm confused. So you don't have a passport. Like, what do you? It's like sounds like you're trying to so, prove you're a prince. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know? so by 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 right and by law, I'm supposed to have a British and a Portuguese passport because dual nationality. Um, but because I've never actually lived in the mainland, you can't just get that. You have to prove it. Uh, which would have been easy if I was uh, if I wasn't an adult. But because I've already passed 18, you have to prove everything like that. For my parents, it's not just a problem. Um, I don't know how that works or why that works, because that's immigration law, because they've, in a certain limit, a generation limit, well, I'm after that, and it stops with me. I'm the last generation that can claim uh, nationality for a certain country without actually living in it by, by birthright. Um, so it's important for me to actually get that done now, before I'm 35. And you, what kind of passport do you hold right now? Um, I currently have an Indian passport because I had to get a visa for uh, this country here to have a work permit. And work permits only have to be tied up with uh, um, a passport rather than an emergency travel document, which is what I was traveling with. So I had to go to the Indian embassy and get an Indian passport. Okay. So that was easy. Getting the Indian passport was easy? It wasn't very easy. No, but, but I mean, was... since you lived on an island that was Indian yeah, territory, yeah, yeah. Yeah. it made it, so easier. it was easier to get. Yeah, exactly. I see. So then what you're really wanting, though, is you want a Portuguese and British? Yeah. Or if you had to choose one, which one would you rather I'm going to probably choose the Portuguese one after Brexit. All that okay. shit's happening in Britain. So. But ideally, you want both. Yes. Because then that helps your case back on exactly. the colony because it was a British and Portuguese yeah. colony. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, and then your mom is there literally right now trying she to is, make yeah. this happen for you? Both my parents are, because they're both retired. My mom is still a travel agency, so she works. She can work anywhere, really. Okay. Dad's retired, but yeah, they're together at the moment, trying to sort it out. Wow. Do you have any siblings? Mm-hmm. That was it, yeah? No, sorry. I don't have any siblings. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm the only child. I, uh, my mom had a firstborn. Uh, I think he died seven days later because his lungs were not developed. But okay. No, I was by myself. Always. Okay. So then... As this plays out and hopefully everything works out in your favor, then what's the plan? Are you going to stay here and just keep doing this? Like? No. Uh, no, that's... This place has offered me a lot. Um, because I had nowhere to go to and I had no money and I wasn't really about to go back to, to India, per se. Because, um, I mean, that's the only place you could go back to work exactly, now because yeah. you have a passport yeah, for it. That was I the only see. place I could go back. And it, it, was, it was frightening. It was... It was worrying, I was terrified, I was depressed, and I didn't really want to do that. And I met Mike, who's not here at the moment, but he used to run Easy Tiger. And he offered me a job, just out of the blue. He didn't know anything about me, he didn't know my story, he just saw me here for three weeks, because I stayed here for quite a long time, because I really loved the area, not because I was looking for a job. Um, he offered me a job and he asked me to stay, and I was like, well, I've got nothing else to do. 
and that just led on to where I am. And I'm really grateful for the guys who just let me work here and, and staying here with with the actual with the work permit and going through the hassle of actually getting me um, license and permits to be here and work here. Mm. Sorry. With your engineering degree, I mean, do you have still aspirations to maybe put that to use? Yes, I do, because I like working with my hands. Um, I built three things here, actually. I built a compacting machine for rubbish, um, which is not here anymore. Um, it's basically, it collects rubbish and puts it into bricks, and they use those bricks uh, as an infrastructure for cattle and stuff like that during flood season or rain or sun, which really helped a thousand villages in the area. Um, and I built two motorbikes from scratch, which I'm quite proud of. But. That's cool. I mean, so I have used it, but not for career-wise. It's just because I actually like working with my hands. Yeah. Well, I mean, I really enjoy it. From you know, American capitalistic point of view, you, you patent your little brick building. Yeah. <laughs> there you go, million-dollar idea. <laughs> Get a Vietnamese patent for it. Yeah. Like that. Well, that doesn't exist, unfortunately. <laughs> no, they rip you off. That's really interesting. So. You're just kind of in a holding pattern, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. And then, if you do get everything sorted, the plan would be to what, like, go to Portugal, go to go back to Europe, and get a job in Europe. Ideally, Europe. Um, I'm looking at Scandinavia, and it's not that I don't want to go back to Britain. I love Britain. Um, it is home to me. People can say what they want. They can. I know it, does, it doesn't make sense for me to say that it's home because I haven't. I've lived there for like two years, but. From the moment I got there, from the moment I got off the plane, from the moment I was talking to people, it felt like home. I didn't have to go out of my way to meet people. I didn't have to go out of my way to talk to people. I didn't have to be someone I wasn't. I was myself and everyone accepted me for it. And for the seven months that I was there, it took people seven months to realize that I wasn't British because I mentioned it. And everyone was stunned. So, And that was not the important thing. It was just the fact that it... I just got along so easily. I gelled with everyone my first hour that I was there. And that will always be home because that's how I see it. Home is a place where you're comfortable and where you feel like you are, you can be yourself. I feel it, dude. I mean, a lot of the people I interview the same, you know, like yeah. they don't fit in from where they may have come from, but they yeah. find that place they do and yeah. that's why they stay. Yeah. So in that fact, I would love to go to Britain, but currently what's going on with Brexit, it can be difficult. Especially for engineers, thousands of people are losing their jobs. Lots of companies, because Britain holds, holds most of the companies as headquarters, not as manufacturing units. Most of the manufacturing happens in Europe. So these countries have decided, well, we're making our stuff in Europe anyway, why should we stay with you? And they've left. So it's the same thing with our NHS, which is the National Health Service. We don't have uh, insurance and stuff like that. It's just free medical stuff. And we're losing a lot of people with the NHS for the same reasons. They're going to Australia and working there. I mean, but like technically, with an Indian passport, you could travel there on like a tourist visa, right? And spend three months? It's very difficult to get one because you have to prove a lot to get a tourist visa. You need to prove uh, you have stable income into your bank account and lots sum of money. Uh, you need to get an invitation from someone. Um, you need to prove that your uh, sponsor is letting you go for a certain amount of time. Um, you need to release um, your sponsor's funding. Uh, they, this, your sponsor has to show a lot to a government that they probably don't want to show. Um, there's a lot of documents that are involved. It, the process takes about two months. I know this because I've done it because I went, I went to England for Christmas. And to get my visa for that took me about, about five months of preparation. Um, but I, I got it and I went home and for Christmas I was quite happy about that. <laughs> um, where can you go with an Indian visa? That's easy. Uh, you can go to a lot of countries for a very short amount of time though. 
Um, but again, you still need to prove, like even for Thailand, uh, it's 2,000 baht that you pay. It's called a visa on arrival. Uh, you have to pay 2,000 baht on arrival, but you need to show a bank statement for the last six months. Um, stable income coming in. You need to have an exit uh, ticket. Um, you need to show accommodation for the entire length that you're there every single night. Um, you need to show that you have about 10,000 to 20,000 baht to live on for the time that you are in Thailand, for the, depending on the number of days. I think the allocated is 3,000 baht a day or something. So it's kind of hard to prove all of that when you're, like, especially when you're working in a, in, a, in a country like this where you don't really have a bank account to, and stable income coming in every single month. And so. Now I'm putting it together, it makes sense now, yeah. where it's like it's just so difficult for you to do anything exactly. because of the visa mm-hmm. and the passport you hold. Like, so that's why you just kind of are in this holding pattern yeah. of trying to wait until that exactly. day comes. I'm just trying to make the best of the situation that I'm in and save up in the process rather than bum around and not do anything in my life. Are you able to save up? Yeah, I am. I, well, I'm saving up again because I went home and I spent it all. Okay. <laughs> England's not cheap, but... Um, yeah, I'm in the process of saving up again. So, and then when you go back, I mean, London is the place that you feel most at home, or do you? Uh, do you Cornwall see? is what okay. I would say. It's the south, very south of England, it's by the coast. And family still live there, so it's funny. Like most of my family live in Britain, so when the transition happened, when people were starting to move back, everyone did, except for my mum and dad, because they weren't in the colony. They were. My mum was in Scotland, getting her degree. Uh, my dad was somewhere in Australia on the rig. So this part of transition was completely oblivious to them because they weren't, they didn't know anything about it hmm. until my mum was pregnant with me and they, had, they decided to go back to the colony and settle down and they realised, oh, it's a bit too late now. Are you close with the extended family you have in England? Not really. Uh, mum is. Um, I haven't met most of them because people left when I was like two. I like, don't even remember most of them. I lived with my cousin for, for two years and he moved to... His dad worked for KLM, uh, the Dutch airline. Um, they moved to Abu Dhabi in Dubai when he was three, and then two years later they moved to Canada. So he's officially Canadian, he's been living there for like donkeys of years now. <laughs> yeah. Um, so everyone kind of took their own route. My mum's, one of my other mum's siblings lives in Australia. He moved there when he was 12. So. So what about the friends home. that you had that you traveled with? Where have they gone? They're all in their own countries, respective countries, like doing whatever they. You don't really keep in touch anymore? Uh, we do, but not as often as I'd like, I'd say. Mm-hmm. And plus the time difference doesn't help. So phone calls and conversations like that don't really happen. It's more, more texting. <laughs> Interesting. If you could give any of the listeners advice or, I don't know, words of wisdom on, if say they want to do something similar, you've been traveling for five years, I know you're in a holding pattern now, which isn't necessarily your choice. Yeah. But like, how do you get started? And then maybe how would you make the best of a situation like you, that you're in? <laughs> the easiest way to get started, I'd say, is book a one-way ticket. And push your boundaries. Don't be afraid because you think, oh, I'm not going to be able to survive. Because that's not true. Well, human nature is to survive. And you can. You can always find a job. You can always find something sustainable. Like, the majority of the people I live with have had no money at one point when they were traveling. There's loads of cases like me where they have no money, not cases in terms of where they are in, um, in the world. But... They've had no money when they're traveling, they had no, they have to think about what they're going to get for food. And there's loads of places you can work who provide you accommodation and food and give you a little bit of income, not a lot. But you can keep going with that. And you move on to the next one and find it, if you want to keep going that way. But you get to see a lot in the process. You get to learn a lot about a different culture that you would normally never do at home. 
What's the biggest thing you've learned about yourself? Um, I used to be a very, very shy person. Like, I couldn't, I couldn't talk to you about this. I couldn't talk to another person who sat next to me. Not because, and it came across as a very rude thing, but because 19 years of my life I stuck to myself, and then I was just thrown out this window, and had to deal with this whole world and life and stuff. Like that. I was put in. I was. I just felt really close. I didn't know how to get out of it. And that was one of the major reasons why I wanted to work at Easy Tiger because we have like 300 people. So I put myself in that situation because I wanted to get out of being close. And my God, it worked. Like I, you, I can talk to anyone now. I don't really feel shy or anything. I get along with most people. So. How long did that process take? Uh, about a couple of months, I'd say. Three, three months is when after three months is when I started to to get the gist of all of it mm. and that's what I would say to people like if you think that you can't do something put yourself in a situation that makes you do it it is difficult it is tough but you'll get that beautifully said my friend thank you for joining us no worries dude thank you for having me awesome Joy and thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story with us we wish you all the best and hope that your parents are able to sort out those passports for you to make it way easier to go home spend time in a country that you love and just be able to move more freely around the world without having to spend all that time trying to get visas and not being able to stay as long as you really want. Please remember that Misfits and Rejects is on Spotify. Please remember to share Misfits and Rejects with your friend if you like this episode. Rating and commenting on this episode really helps me in the ratings. So please remember, whatever you're listening to it with, whether it's Spotify or iTunes, rating it and commenting on it really helps me grow and get that Misfits and Rejects message out there. You know, lifestyle design taking those steps to really design that life that you want, that you've always dreamed of. And please stay tuned. Next week's going to be another great episode with another really cool Misfit and Reject. I think you all are so very beautiful. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspires you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.